0: Welcome to Christ the King and Happy New Year. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to think about the subject of worship. I think worship is uh, the most important work of of the church, and probably most the most important thing uh, we do, regardless of uh, church or otherwise. Uh, we're in a bit of a transition uh, in our musical worship. We have an excellent search committee that is diligently searching for the next person to lead us in this important ministry. And I just thought it would be good for us to spend the next couple of weeks together thinking about the subject of worship. So a simple sermon series over this week, next week, and following. We'll think about why we worship. Next, we'll think about who we worship. Finally, we'll think about how we worship. So why, who, and how. So this uh, morning, the question that I want to ponder with you is, why? Why why do we worship? Not just you and me, obviously, but why do billions of people around the globe from all times, why, why do we do this thing that we're doing this morning? Obviously, different religions, different settings, different denominations. I'm speaking very broadly about this subject of worship, but we are certainly not alone. Uh, in our desire to gather for worship why why did you this morning brave the frigid cold temperatures why do you give generously of your time and your your resources And, and by the way you do it's a very generous congregation of both those things of your time and of your financial resources why do you do it well, before, I, before you start pondering that question too seriously and you think, yeah, why do, why do I do that? Let me, uh, let me offer at least one answer that I stumbled upon as I was doing research for this sermon. It's an answer that as I read it, I thought, you know, I've heard that before. It rings a bell. Uh, back to my high school humanities or college humanities course, uh, answering the question of why we worship. And One possible, and that's an answer I don't agree with, so bear with me, but one answer to why we worship is this. The answer dates all the way back to the Neolithic time period. That's really, really long ago. I'm not quite sure, but very far. And apparently there was some moment of inspiration that our ancient ancestors had when we realized that, oh, we could do something called farming, and we developed something called agriculture. And credit to this uh, momentary strike of brilliance was our wisdom, our thinking. We call ourselves homo sapiens, that word sapient is uh, our own self-congratulations. We think of ourselves as very wise and very logical. And it was our wisdom and our logic that gave birth to what we now know as agriculture. And so we moved from being hunters and gatherers and following the herds across the Serengeti, gathering whatever Berries we could along the way to developing agriculture. With agriculture came villages. With villages came communities. You may be thinking, now how does that relate to worship? Well, here's how it relates to worship. You see, villages and communities are much more complex than, oh, say, a wandering herd, a wandering uh, wandering tribe following a herd. You see, villages have, communities have long-term goals and need to store their food and have permanent housing, need to have some sort of governance. And so religion sprang out of that need. Religion was a, uh, a way to unite a bunch of disparate tribes that really don't play together very well with a common sense of destiny, a common view of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, and these primitive practices that we have evidence of of burials are all just a way of getting people on the same page, getting all these uh, wandering tribes to have the same view of right and wrong, the same view of good and bad, the same uh, common destiny. And that's say some. That's how, that's why we worship. Now, I find that to be a grossly uh, unappealing description and definite or reason for why we worship, and I'm not the only one who has such a uh, A distaste. uh, Serious thinkers and people who have no real friendliness to uh, faith in particular are reevaluating this uh, common view of worship and it's based on a recent archaeological discovery recent in the past decade. It occurred in modern day Turkey or Turkey. Um, Archaeologists have discovered the oldest known human building. It dates to about 11,600 years ago. That's 7,000 years before the Great Pyramids. Really, really old. And this uh, oldest known human structure, I guess there are a few huts and hovels around, maybe a cave that has been older than that. But this is the the biggest human structure of any substance. It looks a little bit like Stonehenge. Uh, It has stones that are stacked in a circle. 16 tons per stone. Imagine that. The resources that those people must have had, the limited resources. Imagine the challenge of bringing 16-ton stones and shaping them and fashioning them uh, in a circle. And that's what it is. And as you can tell by the direction that this is trending, what, what was that structure? It, of course, was a place of worship, a place where... Uh, ancient rites and rituals occurred. And what is interesting about this temple, what is causing people to reevaluate the birth of religion, is that this temple predates uh, the birth of agriculture. You can follow this, if you're interested, write down the name Charles Mann, M-A-N-N. This is all reported in the National Geographic on the birth of religion, June 2011. Remember the previous story? Well. Uh, Civilization needed something to uh, unite a bunch of disparate tribes. No, no, no. See, the impulse to worship came first. There's something primal. Uh, There's something inherent. There's something undeniable in each one of us that we are worshipers. You see, worship serves no utilitarian purpose, It does, but instead is an undeniable, unrelenting, and primal instinct that is inherent in each one of us. Why do you worship? Because you're a worshiper. That's why. Homo sapien? Mm-mm. We're not as logical, we're not as reasonable as we give ourselves credit When's the last time you made an illogical choice having all the right facts in front of you, but that did nothing to help you make the right choice? I can think of a few of my own within the past 24 hours. When have we collectively as a people made an illogical choice? Oh, I can think of a few in the past as well. We're not quite as logical as we give ourselves credit. What are we? We're not homo sapiens. We are homo adoramos. We are man, woman, the worshiper. My dog is not a worshiper. Feed it, water it, take it on an occasional walk, and that creature's happy for the most part. Take care of your creature comforts, my creature comforts, and you and I will be grossly unsatisfied. It's not enough. We want to connect with something or someone who is bigger, who is better, brighter, a purpose that is broader than us. We come into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. We come into the world thirsty, we come into the world as worshipers. Turn with me to Psalm 42. My soul is a thirst for God, a thirst for the living God. I wonder if you've ever been in a place that's been affected by drought. If you've ever seen a riverbed river that should be a river, but instead is just that dry, caked soil. I wonder if you've ever seen just a dust cloud blowing across the street. Well, as a psalmist looks out at a dry, parched land, he says, My soul thirsts for God like that land thirsts for water. We're thirsty. We are all thirsty, and it is our thirst that drives this impulse to worship. You know that the Bible is not really concerned with uh, with atheism as a as a danger to your spiritual health. Not really. I can think of one uh, passage in the Bible that really addresses atheism. That's in the Proverbs, in which somewhat dismissively the author says, only a fool would say in their heart that there is no God. Now, the Bible's not concerned about atheism. Why? Because you're thirsty and you're a worshiper and you'll find something to worship. What the Bible is concerned primarily is that you and I are going to Worship the wrong thing. We're going to find something that is unhealthy, unhelpful, to slake our thirst. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. Listen to what author uh, David Foster Wallace says. He wrote this in a commencement speech. I don't cite him for his uh, convictions on his uh, Christian faith, and that will become evident as I read this. But his observation about you and me is spot on. Listen to what David Wallace says in his commencement speech. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or some spiritual type of thing to worship, again, not, not really robust Christian convictions there, but bear with me, the reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship again, keep in mind this is he does not have a strong faith background, but he's just looking at how you and I operate, and this is his observation. You worship money and things if they if that is where you tap into real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age start showing you will die a million deaths. Worship power and you will feel weak. Worship your intellect, you will feel stupid. We know this already, you know this already. The trick is keeping the truth in the front of our daily consciousness. We are all thirsty and because we are all thirsty we are all by nature worshipers and author David Wallace is right in line with the Bible when he warns of the peril of worshiping the wrong thing so what is the right thing what is the thing that you should I you and I should worship well the psalmist says my soul thirsts for what for who my soul thirsts for God for the living God now just a quick note Note that he is not thirsting for moral guidance. He's not thirsting for the Ten Commandments of this is how you ought to live. He's not thirsting for oh theological insight. He's searching for well, he's searching for a personal encounter. When can I come before you? When can I stand in your presence? He's thirsty for what we're all thirsty for, a real and personal, life-changing encounter with a living God. That is the thirst behind all of our thirsts. So just quickly, have you forgotten what David Wallace suggested that we all know to be true? Are you trying to draw meaning in life through something that will, in the end, eat you alive? I think we all all do. We all are. But listen to what Jesus says from John chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the water that slakes our thirst. We could go on. He is the food that satisfies your hunger. He is the friend that will never leave you. He is the lover who lays down his life for you. And the whole point of Christian worship, the, everything that we do here, our hope and our prayer as we gather for worship is that we will encounter him. Just keep that in mind because it's easy to forget. It's easy to think of worship in any number of definitions of what we are doing by what we are doing here. Do we come here to visit with our friends? Sure, fine. Sing a few songs? Great. Hear a good sermon? Fine. But the primary thing, what we are after, and if we're not after this, then we're just wasting our time. What we are all after here is a real encounter with the living God, Jesus Christ. And if that's not what we're about, then let's pack it up and go home. It's too cold to be out otherwise, right? Jesus Christ, who is always present all the time, is especially present here and now. When you and me and people who call upon his name gather for worship, to hear from him, to sing his praises, the Lord who is always present is especially available right now. He is here and ready to be heard in the reading of the word. Uh, He is here ready to nourish us with the bread and the wine. He is here and present and living within each man or woman or child that calls upon his name. His spirit is living inside each one. He is here enthroned in the praises of his people. And the primary goal of Christian worship is to encounter him to satisfy our longings that the psalmist puts so eloquently when he says my soul thirsts for God when shall i come and appear before him Let's not forget why we're here Finally unless we overpromise and underdeliver I want us to observe the longing note, the wistful note that he is just unavoidable in this psalm as he remembers back to some previous experience. Verse 4, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would lead. Right? He remembers back with nostalgia of some previous experience. He looks at his current situation of long- with, uh, that is unsatisfactory, unsatisfying, deep calls to deep. Verse 11, why are you so cast down over my soul? Why in turmoil? That's a real part of worship as well. This wistful, longing, nostalgia. Because it is true that Jesus is here. Truly here. It is also true that we will never experience him as we will one day experience him. One day we, when Jesus returns, we will see him as he is. Now now we can only see through a glass, see through a glass darkly. One day we will hear Jesus plainly. Now we can only hear him faintly, like that still small voice whispering in the quietness of your heart. One day we will feast at a table, at a banquet Right now, we have a small piece of bread and a sip of wine. One day, we will worship fully. Listen to this description of worship from the book of Revelation, chapter 14. The author writes, I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like the harpists playing their harps. Singing a new song. One day, our worship will have the power of thunder, the intensity of rushing water, and the tenderness of a harp. We've never heard that. One day we will. Right now, the best we can do is half heartedly lift our untrained voices. But one day, we will see clearly and hear plainly, feast fully, and worship fully as we experience Jesus Christ perfectly. For now, we must do with a sip of water. One day, when Christ returns, our thirst will be satisfied. So let me conclude with just a few diagnostic questions that we can ponder. The question is not, what are you? Are you worshiping? Of course you are. Are you thirsty? Of course you are. The question that we must ponder is the question that David Wallace posed. What are you thirsty for? What are you thinking about when you're not thinking about anything? What are you worshiping? Remember the biblical wisdom that author David Wallace expressed when he said, you must be careful what you worship because worship the wrong thing and it will literally eat you alive. Secondly, what are our expectations when we come here? I find that so often our experience can, tends to match up with our expectations. Do you come to church to, again, in fellowship, sing some songs, meet with a few folks? Or do you come here like that psalmist came? When shall I meet before God? When shall I stand before the living God? And while our experience of Jesus now is only a pale shadow of what it will one day be when he returns, nonetheless, he is here now, speaking through his word. I wonder, can you hear him? He is nourishing us through the bread and the wine. Will you receive him? He is still enthroned upon the praises of his people. So let's continue to worship him.